series on the cults tonight. We're going to be looking at Islam. And uh, how many of you have wondered where in the world Islam came from and what are we to make of it? Because we're going to be dealing with Islam for quite some time to come. So let's look tonight. I want you to, I said stand one more time, but you need to stand one more time. And I want you to read just Matthew 24, 24, one of the easiest verses in the Bible to memorize because 24, 24. But Let's read what Jesus Christ said about the last days. Can you read it out, with, out loud with me? False Christ, false prophets will come and perform great wonders and miracles. They will try to fool even the people God has chosen, if that is possible. Catch that. Even you can be deceived if you don't stay in the Word of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word tonight. Lord, we're in a very deceptive age and hour, and we need your word more than ever to guide us and guard us and protect us. And we pray for the protection of God's word and that your spirit would teach us tonight. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Now, can you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, God is good. We got a lot to cover tonight, and uh, so let's get right to it. We're looking at Islam, the truth about Islam. Jesus warned that a proliferation of false prophets would appear on the scene, claiming to speak on behalf of God. And they're everywhere now, all throughout the world. They would be, Jesus warned, very convincing. You know, C.S. Lewis said, if something did not look close to the original, deception would be impossible. But true deception is effective because something looks close to the original, even though it's not the original. And Jesus said these people would be very convincing. He called their voice in John chapter 10 a stranger's voice, not the true voice of God. Now let's take a look at Islam and see if it fits the bill that we just read about. Islam in Arabic means submission to God. And so when you're dealing with Islam, the operative thought is submission. It is a world religion founded by an Arab man named Muhammad in the 7th century. Now let's look at Islam a little bit. An adherent to Islam is a Muslim. Muslim in Arabic means what, everybody? One who submits. Okay? There are more than one billion Muslims worldwide. In the Americas, the Islamic population has substantially increased in recent years, both from conversions and the immigration of adherents from other parts of the world. In the United States, the number of Muslims has been estimated at around two to six million people. Now, since Muhammad's the founder, let's look at Muhammad for a minute. Muhammad his character, and his deeds. Muhammad was born in 570 A.D. in Mecca, which is now in Saudi Arabia. He's the founder of the Islamic faith. He was born into a noble family. He was orphaned at an early age. Little is known about his early life, but we do know that he was not wealthy, and it's believed he was a shepherd. When he was 25 years old, he married a wealthy widow, about 15 years his senior. 
Despite her age, she bore Muhammad six children, four of whom survived to adulthood, and he grew up to be a successful merchant. Then he turned contemplative, or we would say philosophical. He began to think about spiritual things, okay? That's the record. He would often visit a cave for solitude and reflection. It was during one of these times of meditation that Muhammad said an angelic being appeared to him, calling him. Now here's where we move into the supernatural. And I want you to remember everything that we have gone into with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. There's a pattern with all of them. Somebody, usually one person, the founder of that religion or cult, claimed to have a supernatural uh, uh, experience where they receive revelation from God. Okay? So here we have now Muhammad's. And I want to also be clear again that I'm not here tonight to mock or make fun of anybody's religion or make fun of any person. I just want to show you what we know about Islam because Islam is covering the world. Islam is knocking on our door. Islam is a very real threat to us. That is radical Islam. I personally believe that it's only a matter of time before we're dealing with radical Islam in this country, its attack against us and against our freedoms. And so I want us to be able to understand where this religion, this thought system, this belief system has come from. So here you have a man saying, I had a, I had a, a visitation from Gabriel, the angel. Now when he had his first visitation, it disturbed Muhammad. And you'll notice I'm putting the Quran quotes up here so that you can know that I'm not just coming up with this. I'm quoting straight out of the Quran so that you can know this is what was written down in their holy book. He was disturbed by the first visitation, told his wife, Khadijah, that he thought he had been visited by an evil jinn. What in the world is a jinn? Well, jinn are supposed to be living beings like people but not angels, who were created from fire and are invisible, yet dwell on the earth. That's what a jinn is. If you ever meet one, let me know. A short time later in the year 610, Muhammad said that the angel Gabriel appeared to him again and commanded him to recite what he was told. Okay? So at 40 years old, he was visited again and given what he put down or what he recited and eventually became the Quran. Now in these encounters with the angel Gabriel, sometimes he would see the angel, other times he would only hear him, and at others he only heard the sound of a bell through which the words of the angel supposedly came. Muhammad could neither read nor write. So he was instructed by this visitation to memorize the words given to him by Gabriel. This complete recitation, which Muhammad received over a 23-year period, ending in 632, the year of his death, and of course that's 632 A.D. This is way, way, centuries after Jesus Christ came and died for us and rose again from the dead. 632, the year of his death, All of these recitations, all these visitations were recited and written down by others into what is known as the Quran. 
Now, I want you to read with me what Paul the Apostle wrote six centuries before this supposedly took place. Can you read it with me? But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. I want you to notice the words, even if it's an angel from heaven, if it's any other gospel than what I have preached to you, let it be accursed. Now, Muslims don't believe that Muhammad himself was divine in any way. That's very interesting to me. Unlike Christianity, which believes in the divinity of Jesus, Muslims believe that Gabriel continued to send Muhammad messages from God until the prophet's death in 632. Now, Muhammad immediately began preaching the message he had received. His wife was his first convert. I think Kathy would be my first convert. You better be. <laughs> All right. His wife was his first convert and soon followed by his cousin and the future successor, his future successor, Ali. So when the boxer Cassius Clay took on the name Muhammad Ali, straight out of hardcore Islam. Now by 615, Muhammad had gained several converts. These early Muslims were persecuted in, in Mecca, Muhammad's birthplace, and mainly by wealthy merchants who controlled the city and feared that the new faith would challenge their economic monopoly. They felt threatened by what he was preaching. That year, about 80 Muslims fled from Mecca and they fled to Abyssinia, which is present-day Ethiopia, to take refuge. Now, Muhammad himself stayed in Mecca for about seven years. And around seven years later, when he was 52 years old, he fled the persecution in Mecca, took his followers north to the city of Medina. Now we know that Muhammad built a house there that became the model for the mosque later, the dome architecture, uh, later built on the site, called the Prophet's Mosque, which has since become the second holiest shrine in Islam after the Kaaba in Mecca. All right. Now, in the year 620, Muhammad lost his beloved uncle, who never became a Muslim, and his wife also died, and after a few months, he sought comfort by marrying the widow of one of his believers, and he also later married the seven-year-old daughter of a friend, who he took into his home three years later when she was ten. According to Muslim historians, Muhammad had 12 wives when he died. That'd make anybody a philosopher. I'm just trying to put a little levity here, folks. <laughs> How many of you guys can say, one's all I can keep up with? How about you ladies? One husband's all I can do. All right. That's why I think polygamy is crazy, baby. All right. Now, while in Medina, Muhammad's tactics, and here's Really important change now. While in Medina, his tactics began to change from persuasion, verbal persuasion, to force. From preaching for converts to force. The Muslims were not faring too well financially, and that combined with mild persecution prompted a revelation to come to Muhammad, permitting him to raid 
passing caravans. This he did, and the Muslim financial problems were solved. You know, that's handy. That's handy. You know, when you're in trouble, just get a revelation, and it comes straight from God, and you can do anything, anything. Okay? So it, it solved his financial problems. And by now, the Muslims were too strong to be stopped. And Muhammad set his sights again on Mecca. At one point in the year 628, he took 10,000 men and entered Mecca unchallenged. The leader of Mecca converted to Islam, and so he conquered his birthplace. Now from there, Muhammad's movement gained further momentum. In 631, two tribes joined Muhammad. And from this time on, many battles ensued. And Islam and Muslims became aggressive physically. Now, I want to say I know that all Muslims worldwide are not violent. I know that. And so let's just settle that right here and now before we progress in this any further. I know that that they have said, we're not all violent, we're peace-loving, and so on and so forth. I understand that. But if you look at all the terrorist attacks, virtually all of them that we've dealt with since the year uh, 9-11-2001, they've all been Islamic. We're about to see that in the fiber and roots of Islam, there is inescapable violence and encouragement to it. And notice with me now, the leader of Islam, Muhammad, turned to violence and physical force and war to carry on his cause. In 631, Muhammad reached peace settlements with the leaders of local Christian and Jewish communities. He brought those groups under Muslim protection as long as they paid the jizya tax demanded of all non-Muslims. So you had to pay them to protect you. That's like the mafia. I pay taxes to my government. They're supposed to protect me. That's it. But this is what they did. And again, I want you to notice submission to Muslim rule was the operative word. In 631, Muhammad died of natural causes. Now let me just compare Christianity with Islam, and let's see what the differences are. All right, let's talk about the afterlife. Christianity says that Christians are going to be with the Lord in heaven, in our resurrected bodies. Non-Christians are going to be cast into hell forever. All right, good. Now let's look at what Islam teaches. There is an afterlife experienced as either an ideal life of paradise for faithful Muslims or hell for those who are not. All right, what about angels? We say angels are created beings, non-human, some of which fell into sin and became evil. The Bible teaches they are very powerful, and the unfallen angels carry out the will of God. Islam teaches angels are created beings without free will that serve God. And angels were created from light, which is something not found in the Bible. You don't see anywhere in Scripture they're created from light, just that God created them. What about atonement? Very important. Because without atonement, we're all lost. Our sin is not covered. Christianity says the sacrifice of Christ on the cross atoned for our sins, whereby His blood becomes the sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. When God sees the blood, His wrath is turned away. 
from you and me who were sinners. And when we receive by faith the work of Christ on the cross, our sin is atoned for and we're forgiven. But in Islam, there is no atonement work other than a sincere confession of sin and repentance by the sinner. But I want you to understand tonight, there's no atonement. So there is never a sense of my eternity, my eternal condition is settled. I don't have to worry about my soul anymore. That peace never fully comes to the Muslim. Okay? What about the Bible? Well, Christianity says that the inspired and errant word of God in the original manuscripts is what comprises our holy Bible. But in Islam, it's respected, it's a respected word of the prophets, but the Bible has been corrupted through the centuries and is only correct insofar as it agrees with the Quran. Is that true or is that false? And if you notice that Mormons did the same thing, Jehovah's Witnesses did the same thing. When it's, when it's a true cultic teaching, it always undermines the Word of God and the work of Christ. Always. It always undermines Scripture and it always undermines the work of Jesus Christ. Well, now, what about the crucifixion? The Bible says it's the place where Jesus atoned for the sins of the world. It is only through, so I got to do this, it is only through this sacrifice that anyone can be saved from the wrath of God. Christianity says there is no salvation apart from the cross. But now, Islam says Jesus did not die on the cross. Did you know that? Instead, God allowed Judas to look like Jesus, and he was crucified instead. How many of you didn't know that? Now you know. So that was really Judas on the cross, which for me is blasphemy. That's blasphemy. But again, church, this is how, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to pick out a cult. A cult will always attack the Word of God. A cult will always attack the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Remember that, always. If it doesn't do that, it's not a cult. What about the devil? Well, the devil to us is a fallen angel who opposes God in all ways. He also seeks to destroy humanity. To the Islam, Islamic faith, Iblis, the devil is Iblis, a fallen jinn. Jinn are not angels nor men, but created beings with free wills. And jinn were created from fire. So they differ greatly on the devil. What about God? The Christian believes that God is a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is no other God in existence. But Islam teaches God is known as Allah. Allah is one person, a strict unity. There is no other God in existence, and He's the creator of the universe over all. But Allah is not in your Bible. And isn't it interesting that when so many of these terrorists attack, they're screaming out the name Allah. Now, what about heaven? How many of you want to go to heaven? All right, let's look at what we know what we believe about heaven, what the Bible teaches. Heaven is the place where God dwells. Heaven is the eventual home of the Christians who are saved by God's grace. It is heaven 
because it is where God is and Christians will enjoy eternal fellowship with Him. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. But what does Islam teach about heaven? Paradise, it's called paradise to Muslims, and it's a place of unimaginable bliss, a garden with trees and food, where the desires of faithful Muslims are met. And I want you to notice something, that the guaranteed way to reach heaven is martyrdom. The guaranteed way to reach heaven is martyrdom. Because there is such an uncertainty about the state of your soul being covered, being guaranteed a place in heaven, the guarantee to get there is martyrdom. Now, what about hell? To the Christian, hell hell is a place of torment, in fire, out of the presence of God. And there is no escape from hell. You're not coming out later. Nobody's going to buy you out, purchase you out, pray you out. Okay? To Islam, hell is a place of eternal punishment and torment in fire for those who are not Muslims, as well as those who were and whose works and faith were not sufficient. Now notice that. Even if you were a Muslim and your works and faith were not sufficient, you may go to hell. But you and me, we going for sure because we're not Muslim. Don't clap that we're going to hell for sure. No. You see what I'm saying? If you're not a Muslim, to them, you're going straight to hell. But they don't even know if they're going or not. It'd be pretty easy to rustle up some martyrs if they knew that if they martyred themselves, they were going to go to heaven for sure. Now, what about the Holy Spirit? To us, to the Christian, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is fully God in nature. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, to the Muslim, they don't even deal with the Holy Spirit. There is no Holy Spirit. The archangel Gabriel is the one who delivers the words of the Quran to Muhammad. The archangel Gabriel was the medium by which revelation was received. But we teach, the Bible teaches, all Scripture was given by inspiration of God. And what did Peter tell us? Holy men of old were born along by what? The Holy Spirit of God who led them what to write. So the source of inspiration is totally different. What about the Lord Jesus Christ? To the Christian, he's the second person of the Trinity. He is the Word who became flesh. He's both God and man. But to the Muslim, he was a very great prophet, second only to Muhammad. Jesus is not the Son of God and certainly is not divine, and he was not crucified. All right, what about Judgment Day? Y'all need to smile at me. You're looking real grim. Smile at me. All right. Judgment Day occurs on the day of resurrection where God will judge all people. Now, to the Muslim, it occurs on the day of resurrection where God will judge all people and Muslims will go to paradise. Okay, we're almost done with this. What about the Quran? Here's what they teach about the Quran. The Quran is the work of Muhammad. It's not inspired nor is it Scripture. There is no verification. Now, this is what we say about it. Let me be clear. This is what we believe about it. There's no verification 
for its accurate transmission from the originals. The final revelation of God to all of mankind, they believe, was given through the archangel Gabriel to Muhammad over a 23-year period. They say it's without error and guarded from error by Allah. But we say there's no verification for it. It's not inspired, and it's not Scripture. By the way, this whole deal this week about the man who threw the Quran in a toilet, have you seen this news story? And now they're charging him with a hate crime, and uh, they're, 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 they're going to try to take him to court on a felony for throwing a Quran in a toilet. And i got to ask you all tonight, would he be going to court for a hate crime if he'd have thrown a Bible in a toilet? No. Uh-uh. But this is political correctness gone amok out there. All right, now, what about man? Well, man, we believe, was made in the image of God. This does not mean that God has a body, but that man is made like God in abilities, reason, faith, and love, and so on. Islam teaches that man is not made in the image of God. Man is made out of the dust of the earth, and Allah breathed life into man. All right, we got a few. This is hard for me to read, but I'm going to keep reading it just so you'll know what they believe. What about Muhammad? Well, Christians believe he was a non-inspired man born in 570 in Mecca and started the Islamic religion. But they believe he was the last and greatest of all prophets of Allah, whose Quran is the greatest of all inspired books. They don't believe in original sin. We do. The Bible clearly teaches original sin, uh, salvation. We believe that it's a free gift of God to the person who trusts in Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. They believe forgiveness of sins is obtained by Allah's grace without a mediator. The Muslim must believe Allah exists, believe in the fundamental doctrines of Islam, believe that Muhammad is his prophet, and follow the commandments of Allah given in the Quran to be saved. All right. Just hang on to that there, uh, Chuck. That's good. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is Islam a peaceful religion? I'm going to ask it again. Islam, is Islam a peaceful religion? Do you believe that it is? All right. I believe, let's just go to the source and see what the source teaches. But I want to deal with something first. Before answering the question about Islam, I want to look at the assertion that Christianity has been just as violent throughout history as Islam. Because here's what many in the Islamic uh, faith will say, that while they've been violent throughout history, so have Christians. And there's really no difference between the two. All right. While it can be rightly pointed out that the Christian church has at times practiced killing in the name of Christ, and they have, as in the regrettable crusades of the Middle Ages when they swarmed into the Middle East and slaughtered in the name of Jesus, holding up crosses, went into Jerusalem, went into the holy city, and slaughtered thousands of Muslims and Jews. It is also clear that these actions were utterly contrary to the teachings of Jesus Christ. This is really important. Though the church, what called themselves the church, it was the medieval Catholic church that did this, Though they said they were doing it in the name of Jesus, they could not point to the teachings of Jesus 
as being what led them to do what they did. This is really important. Let me give you a couple of examples. You remember when they came to arrest Jesus and Simon Peter pulled out his sword and whacked off the ear of that guy that came to arrest him? And so here he is, his his ear's on the ground and this thing is coming off of my ear. Here we go. What did Jesus do? Jesus picked up the ear, put it back on the man's head, prayed for him and healed him. And I want you to read with me what Jesus said. Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Does that sound like a, a leader who is teaching his disciples to be violent? He said, no, no, if you pick up the sword, you're going to die by the sword. What you live by, you will die by. Jesus said to a perplexed Pontius Pilate, who could not understand why he did not call on his followers to rescue him. Jesus said, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, now read this with me, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Do you hear that? Jesus said, if I was all about this world, my followers would fight for me. They would resort to violence, and by violence, they would deliver me. But he said, but my kingdom is not of this world, so my followers are not physically violent. Okay? Jesus taught his followers to bless those that curse you, do good to those that hate you, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you that you may be called the children of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't the Pharisees and others do the same? But you love your enemies. He did not teach physical violence. Nowhere in all the New Testament can one instance be given of Jesus teaching physical violence. Some have tried to use the following verse to say that Jesus does teach violence. He said, don't imagine that I came to bring peace on the earth. I came not to bring peace but a sword. I heard somebody on Larry King Alive say that the other night. Don't you know that Jesus said that he came to bring a sword and not peace? So he also was violent. Uh Uh-uh. That isn't what Jesus was saying at all. Jesus was telling his followers who were primarily Jewish at the time that their receiving of the gospel would bring division to their homes and families. A sword, as it were. And I can't tell you how true that is. When I got saved, man, it brought a sword into my home. It was a sword of division. How many of you can say you've experienced the same thing? And if you were Jewish in Jesus' day, if you accepted Christ and turned away from Judaism, man, it was over with. A sword divided you from your family. And that's what he was talking about. There were years my parents made fun of me, uh, uh, were distant from me, my sisters. It caused a huge rift. A sword. That's what Jesus was talking about. Look what he said. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. Anybody ever had an enemy in your own household? 
Isn't that a fun thing to experience? And what does it? When you walk in and tell everybody that you got saved and you think everybody's going to rejoice with you, but all of a sudden they turn on you. They turn on you because it's so toxic to their particular life when you shine the light of Christ into your home. So that's what Jesus was talking about. Now here's another verse often used to assert that Jesus taught violence in Matthew eleven twelve. Read this with me, would you? And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. I heard somebody quote that, say, see, he taught violence. Nope. Do you see the little phrase, suffers violence? That, word, that phrase, suffers violence, refers to the antagonism of the enemies of the kingdom. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is under attack. It's suffering the antagonism of people who don't like it. So that's what he means by it's suffering violence. Now what about the violent that take the kingdom by force? That sounds like people picking up swords and going out as an army. But it doesn't mean that. It refers to those who press into the kingdom of God in spite of violent opposition. So no matter what people say about our faith, no matter how violently they oppose it, and I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of violence against your faith or real opposition, uh, opposition against your faith, but I'll tell you, it's a humbling and a difficult thing when people are attacking you, and you've got to make up your mind. No matter what I'm experiencing, no matter what they're saying, I'm going to press in the kingdom of God in spite of opposition. How many of you feel that way? In spite of opposition, I'm pressing in. If they mock me, I'm pressing in. If they attack me, I'm pressing in. If, if, if they ridicule me, I'm still going to press in. Okay? Now, the same thing cannot be said of Islam. Muhammad, the founder and leader of Islam, not only practiced violence, but consistently taught his followers to engage in violence and forced subjugation. Now, let me let the Quran speak for itself. And again, I'm not calling all Muslims violent. I'm looking at the writings of the founder. Can you all say amen? amen? All right, here we go. Here's uh, from the Quran. The hypocrites and those in whose hearts is a disease and the agitators in the city do not desist. Cursed, wherever they are found, they shall be seized and murdered. A horrible murdering. Such has been the course of Allah with respect to those who have gone before. And you shall not find any change in the course of Allah. There's Muhammad saying that the way of Allah is violence. It is to murder. Seized and murdered with horrible murdering. Let's look at some more. Quran chapter 9 verse 71. O prophet, strive hard, fighting against the unbelievers and the hypocrites. And what does it say? Be harsh with them. Their abode is hell, an evil refuge indeed. Here's another quote. The infidels, that's you, should not think that they can get away from us. Prepare against them whatever arms and weaponry you can muster so that you may what, everybody? Terrorize them. So here we have terrorize straight out of the Quran. 
given by the angel Gabriel supposedly to terrorize people who don't agree. Here's another quote. Those who reject Islamic faith, Allah will not forgive them nor guide them to any path except the way to hell to dwell therein forever. And this to Allah is easy. I'm going to give you several quotes to give you an idea of what's really in that, that Quran. Here's another quote. We smote them and they scattered. The impious met death. They became fuel for hell. All who aren't Muslims must go there. It will consume them while the stoker, that means the stoker of the flames of hell, who is Allah, increases the heat. Well, that's good to know you're down there and he's turning the heat up. <laughs> they had called Allah's apostle a liar. They claimed you are nothing but a sorcerer. So what did Allah do, everybody? He destroyed them for saying that. Here's another quote out of the Quran, chapter 33. Truly, if the hypocrites stir up sedition, if the agitators in the city do not desist, we shall urge you to go against them and set you over them. They shall have a curse on them. Whenever they are found, what everybody, they shall be seized and slain without mercy. A fierce slaughter, murdered, a horrible murdering. This is hard to read, but this is in the Quran. Now, as I read these things, is it hard to imagine some people getting into a jet and flying into the side of the trade towers full of people in the name of Allah as we read these things. All right. Quran chapter 33 again. Verily Allah has cursed the unbelievers who by the way he defines as Christians in the fifth surah and has prepared for them a blazing fire to dwell in forever. Now here's out of the Bukhari. Certainly I decided to order a man to lead the prayer and then take a flame to burn all those who had not left their houses for the prayer, burning them alive inside their homes. Boy, that didn't increase prayer meeting on Tuesday nights. <laughs> if, if I told you, you better show up or we're coming to your house with stakes and burn you down. You, you know, we laugh, but this is in what is read by dedicated Muslims. Bukhari, again, another quote. The prophet said, if a, if a Muslim discards his religion, kill him. That's stop backsliding. Here's Quran chapter 5. Believers, take not Jews and Christians for your friends. That's enough quotes, I think, to give us an idea, isn't it? Now, I want you to understand the ultimate aim of Islam. The ultimate aim of Islam is to make one ummah of the people of the world, an Islamic people in submission to Allah. In fact, the goal of Islam is for the entire world to be under its rule or Sharia law. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. I don't care what the media says. I'm just going to turn this off for a second. Inexplicably, I can't explain it. I don't understand it, never will. Why the media has seemingly refused to tell the truth about this. And they seem almost to side with people who want to destroy us. But be very clear about this one thing. And I'm about to read a quote from a former Muslim that their desire 
They feel indeed their divine calling from Allah is to subjugate the entire world to Sharia law. It's already happened in most of Europe. It's happening in Russia. England is as good as gone if they don't immediately take drastic steps to stop it. And I believe that one of the ministries of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Turning Point Church in the days to come, is going to be ministering to people desperate for answers to what is happening around us in large part because of this particular religion. So I'm not just whistling Dixie up here. I'm not just teaching this to teach just another deal. I want you to understand this is very real. They feel they have a divine mandate. We have a divine mandate to reach the whole world with the gospel, but not to subjugate the world. Our mandate is to preach the gospel to the whole world, and then the end shall come. But if people don't believe in Christ and accept him, we don't bring them in and say, accept it or die. We say, okay, it's your choice. But let me now be real clear here and just uh, read something to you. According to Elisha Davidson in Islam, Israel, and the Last Days, that's his book, Islam, Israel, and the Last Days. Islam sees the world as being divided into two parts. This is how they see the world. That which is in submission is called Darul Salaam or house of peace. If you're in submission to Islam, they call you a house of peace. That which is not yet in submission is called Daral Harb, house of war. To put it another way, those in the Western countries who have not yet been brought into submission are subject to jihad. This term does not simply mean the subjection of unbelievers to some kind of violent confrontation. Jihad implies anything and everything that furthers the cause of Islam and Allah. But don't be mistaken, their intent is to take the world and bring it into subjection to Sharia law. This idea is seen in the fact that Muslim leaders believe and preach the concept of a jihad or holy war in which those who die become martyrs and go immediately to heaven, straight from a former Muslim. This belief alone accounts for much of the bloodshed seen in the world today. World conquest by Islam is at the very heart of Islamic theology. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, Pastor Jeff, what do we do? Well, I'm going to tell you, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I'm going to tell you, uh, believe me, God is moving throughout all the earth. And I wish I had time to go into it, but I don't. I'm going to be preaching some messages on what I believe is the next major prophetic event on the prophetic timetable. I'm likely going to be preaching them in the next couple of weeks on Sunday mornings because I believe we are at the door of the next major prophetic event in Scripture. And it has everything to do with God dealing with Islam and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the answer? Christians have got to rise up everywhere. Hey, it's time to come out of the closet. Everybody else has. <laughs> come on, y'all. Everybody else has. It's time to come out. Because this is a very real battle. And we battle not against flesh and blood, 
but against spirit forces. And so we need to stand up and teach and preach the Lordship, and I mean this, the Lordship, the superiority, and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. This battle is spiritual, and it's only going to be won in the arena of the Spirit. I want to make Jesus famous again. I want to just play my part in making Jesus famous again. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek and to the Gentile. Let's stand up tonight, can we? I know it's difficult to hear these things, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost kind of glad I'm done with exposing the cults so I don't have to read these things anymore. But I think we need to know the truth because we're not going to get it from the media. It's not going to come from them. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, Lord God, that you're moving among Muslim people. Many of them are being born again, are turning to Christ all over the world by the thousands. And we pray that you'll help our church to do its own part in lifting up your name and declaring your uniqueness and your superiority and your redemption, your power, and your kingdom. We ask you, Lord God, to help us to be bold and courageous in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. Well, can we give the Lord a hand of praise?